Tension between brothers Cyclops and Havoc fuel this story. Both are prelates of Apocalypse and work with Mr. Sinister as security enforcement to the Pens, a name for the imprisoned mutants and humans that are genetic guinea pigs for McCoy. This tension between them reaches a boiling point when Mr. Sinister leaves unexpectedly, and Cyclops assumes an even higher leadership role, one that garners recognition from Apocalypse. Jealousy consumes havoc, and after spying on Cyclops, he learns that Cyclops has been helping mutants escape from the pens. It isn't until the shocking return and capture of Jean Grey that Havoc arrests Cyclops. Left to be tortured by McCoy, do Jean and Cyclops escape and free the imprisoned mutants? This is Marvel Mythos. Hey, hey, namaste, my fellow Marvelous Nerds. We are the Marvel Mythos Podcast. This is Age of Apocalypse, part four. We're going to be talking Factor X one through four and X-Men one through four. I am your host, Brian Barley. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Marvel underscore Mythos. And today I'm joined once again by my good friend and good friend of the show, Trent Seeley. Uh, hey, hey, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to have you back. You were on the Phalanx Covenant episode and Age of Apocalypse Part 2, and I'm particularly excited to talk about these with you uh, because of your, your history that we kind of briefly talked last time um, regarding the Age of Apocalypse and some research that you did. Mm-hmm. And if people want to find you on social media to talk about Age of Apocalypse or actually read what you've written about Age of Apocalypse, where can they go? Uh, the best place would be my Twitter, uh, which is InstaTrent, I-N-S-T-A-T-R-E-N-T. Uh, and I had that before Instagram was a thing, so I'm really not trying to play off of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can also check out uh, my personal blog at continuitynod.com. So uh, that, that has a lot of the more recent articles, including that Age of Apocalypse article. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting if you're into the publishing side of stuff. So it gives you kind of like the Marvel behind the scenes of how uh, things were at the time the event was coming together. Which I think can actually enlighten a lot regarding just kind of the whole event itself and and what comes out of it, in my opinion. So definitely check that out if you are a fan of Age of the Apocalypse stuff. So, okay, we will not waste time because you have Pokemon to play (laughs) and I have a wife who will divorce me. So we'll go ahead and jump right in uh, with Factor X. So um, at the top of it, you kind of heard a little bit of the stories surrounding this. A lot of it is brotherly rivalry or brother rivalry between Havoc and Cyclops. That's a huge part of it. Mm. Uh, the other parts of it are like Scott's um, liberationist mentality that he has. So those are some of the big themes that I wanted to talk about in this. But basically, we have Scott and Havoc working with Mr. Sinister, who's working for Apocalypse, and they have these pins of human slaves and um, human um, uh, people that are being worked on by Beast or Dark Beast? McCoy. Um, yes, McCoy <laughs> is Te- what they call Technically, him, right? he's not coined as like Dark Beast quite yet. Uh, he goes by McCoy as this, but he's uh, the the version of Hank McCoy that has no morals, because why have morals in a world ruled by Apocalypse? Which makes perfect sense um, to, some, to, to some extent, right? Um, yeah, but he's been uh, manipulating DNA on humans and mutants and kind of making these own freak things that he can come up with. And uh, Cyclops and Havoc are kind of um, involved, not necessarily in that part of it, but in, you know, the security of all that. And um, Mr. Sinister just bounces at one point and Cyclops is left in charge. And we kind of learn that Cyclops has been 
letting some of these um, these prisoners out. Mm-hmm. He's been par- part of the reason for that, and then that leads to a whole lot of drama between him and Havoc. So you kind of talked to me a little bit in text. It was very brief, but you talked about family drama um, being the way that you would describe this. Let's let's start there mm-hmm. um, with this family drama between Havoc and Cyclops. Can well, you elaborate on that? Well, and it's not even just between Havoc and, and Cyclops. Uh, there's a, a pairing of siblings throughout the book. So obviously at the forefront we have Cyclops who is at this point, essentially the head prelate, he's the the highest member of the military police under Apocalypse, uh, under Sinister, uh, before Sinister bounced, as you so eloquently put it, Brian. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, underneath him directly is Alex, and that is a huge source of contention. Alex has always been the little brother who wanted to uh, be in the first place, you know, get all the accolades, get the title, get the recognition. Uh, he wanted to be the next horseman if such a position could come up. Uh, and when that looks to come into place for Scott instead, that that that's a huge issue. It just so happens that there's this like secret heroic arc going on in the background with Scott Summers, where he's actually been like a liberator of these uh, caged mutants, uh, less than alpha class mutants. I guess Apocalypse would have called them dregs. Uh, and, uh, yeah, th- th- there's all that going on in the background, but in addition to Cyclops and Havoc, there's the Bedlam brothers, uh, there's Aurora and Northstar, there are the Guthries, there's, like, uh, these pairings throughout this book of, uh, siblings and how their dynamics kind of work with each other, um, which, uh, is kind of cool when you look at the whole book in that context. Man, that's an excellent point. I honestly totally whiffed on that. And that is really embarrassing for someone who's been talking about comics for a year and a half now. Um, But yeah, I think of the four groups that you mentioned, the healthiest relationship was the Bedlam Brothers. Yes. Um, And and who are um, awesome, by the way. Um, I I don't know what their 616 counterparts are, but I was enjoying their banter. I like how um, this is uh, similar to uh, Department X from uh, Age of X-Man. Uh, This is a military police or like a a militia, some sort of like, um, well, yeah, military police is probably the best way to put it. Uh, But there are people on it who seem like genuinely good people. They're just operating as part of this awful system. Yeah, um, I I like that uh, you you coordinated that or, you know brought up uh, Department X with that because I hadn't picked up on that, but I like that as well. And the Bedlam Brothers, like, I'm with you. Like, I don't know who their 616 counterparts are, if they even have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I absolutely love them in this. They were very entertaining the whole time. And then kind of seeing, like, how well they got along mm-hmm. and how that was juxtaposed with Scott and Havoc. Or the Guthries, uh, who are yes. e- equally terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. The Guthries are just, like... They're the worst. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and and the it's, cra- it's crazy to see Sam, like, Cannonball, be such a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I'm sitting here, I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, we've at least maintained that um that like cyclops has some of the core that of who he is right and Mm -hmm. we've seen in some of these other ones like gene and wolverine or sorry weapon x have like the core of who they are (laughs) thank you for that correction yeah (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i have to you know because otherwise they might start thinking about that milan villain that travis brought up in the previous episode but uh yeah uh so 
they a lot of the the characters that we see maintain some of the some sort of essence from their 616 counterparts but in this one man McCoy and freaking Sam Guthrie I just was like whoa all right this was even worse than I like could have imagined these people being just because Xavier wasn't around and apocalypse took over but but the way they contextualize it it does make sense so the whole crux of this book is like no Xavier equals um, the Summers boy being adopted by Sinister, because of course that would happen. And no Xavier means that uh, you you don't have these groups of mutants being protected. You have no one to stand up to Apocalypse. You just there, there's all these changes that make sense. The Guthries being like this penniless family in the middle of the desert that gets co-opted by Sinister or whatever nefarious Apocalypse force that makes sense. And in that circumstance, you could kind of imagine someone who's like impoverished and and doesn't have access to any power being picked up by this like authoritarian military force and being like, Hey, do you want to become a military policeman? Obviously Sam's going to jump at that because it beats what he's currently doing, you know? So it's like, it's weird in a sense to see characters who are otherwise like really sweet, be horrible. Uh, But even with Hank or McCoy in this case, like it makes a lot of sense that without all of the uh, moral and ethical restraint, which in some instances, even 616 Hank has dropped at the wayside for his own whims, scientifically or personally, um, you see this like monster with Dark Beast. Uh, and the, the most amazing thing is that it transcends the Age of Apocalypse and he eventually jumps into the main 616 continuity to keep on being this unethical version of Hank McCoy, you know? So. <laughs> he appeared relatively recently in Rosenberg's Uncanny X-Men uh, brief stint. Um, well, yeah, and and, and, and not, not to cut you off again, too, but but uh, one thing that I kind of noticed, again, with Department uh, X for uh, Age of X-Man, is that John Paul is also on that team as well, um, North Star. Uh, and, and North Star and Aurora are only in the first issue of Factor X because they get wiped out pretty soon after um, kind of running into Cyclops uh, when he's out trying to liberate mutants secretly, right? Uh, but uh, it, it's just inter- it, it's interesting from a character perspective that North Star would kind of find himself attracted to these kind of um, institutionalized authority uh, structures, I guess. Mm. And and I love that um, I love that he's actually in that, and you're and you're calling out how similar the two are because um, Age of X Men was uh, essentially like a bunch of writers who are. Um, around our age, as far as I understand it to be, mm-hmm. and that they were all deeply inspired by Age of X Men or Age of Apocalypse when they were younger, mm-hmm. and this was like a a way to attribute that or to kind of put a little twist on it for themselves. Yeah, and uh, and so it would make sense that they would find these correlations to throw in with their own stories that they were doing. So, and uh, to your point there, um, the way that Cyclops handles um, North Star and Aurora leads to uh, him getting found out by Havoc. So he's got Polaris, uh, who he's set free, and he's trying to let her out. And um, they end up tracking her uh, because they, you know, I think she was um, attempted to be set free the night before or something like that. And they end up tracking her and um, Cyclops blasts uh, Aurora and Northstar. And they're, uh, they have like cameras set up to, to catch what's going on. And Havoc sees that Cyclops is the one who did it. So 
Um, so yeah, they don't last very long in this, but they are a brother sister combination inside of this, and they they sort of play in you know they look a terrifying role. They they both they look do. like they've been through like The Conjuring or something. Like they've survived a horror movie. <laughs> they look they look terrifying. Uh, so I was happy when they both ate it. If we're being honest, uh, but 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 there are other characters that are a part of this um, elite mutant force. That's what they're called. The EMF. Uh, that all have kind of like an interesting interplay because some of them are just like Havoc and they're there for power and they're there to be violent. Uh, And in some ways they kind of bear some similarities to uh, Nazi soldiers. (laughs) Uh, And then there are uh, some characters that are a little bit more like Scott. Like, you know that they're going to go MIA at the end of this and no one's going to hear from them again, you know? (laughs) Are you like, referring to the Bedlam Brothers? Like the there? Bedlam Brothers. And I would read an entire comic about them. I would read more than one comic about them. <laughs> they, they, I wish I knew more about their 616 stuff. It looks like they might actually be villains in the 616. Um, but yeah. Well, te- technically sure. they were here as well. Or at least they were characterized as such for about a, an issue and a half. But... <laughs> Yeah, they they started, you know, I mean, they were just on the wrong side, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they were taking advantage of the system because they could prosper from it. But, uh, you know, when push came to shove, they made the right decision. So, Uh, um, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, we've kind of touched on the similarities and differences between the different characters. Uh, We haven't touched on, like, Angel or Polaris, uh, who I both found to be kind of similar to their 616 counterparts. Uh, What were your thoughts? Yeah, they were almost... um, of all of the ones in Age of Apocalypse, they were almost uh, as spot on as they've that anyone has been mm-hmm. um, to their six one counter six one six counterparts, especially Angel. Uh, he just has that playboy billionaire mentality. Doesn't really let much um, phase him, at least that you can see, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe underneath the surface, but um, what he's letting people see, he doesn't seem to get phased or riled, and he's you know still trying to maintain this whole heaven place where everyone can kind of come mutants and humans. And yeah, so I really felt like he was probably the one that didn't change uh, hardly at all, which is ironic given that um, apocalypse was such a huge part of what changed him in the 616. Well, his art kind of comes to a close at the very end. He does ultimately decide to help out with the anti-apocalypse figures. You know, he takes out what looks almost like a, a bazooka, like a nod to the original, uh, 1963 uncanny cover uh, and he he uses it and he takes flight um, it, it just doesn't feel very earned I guess um, but but another thing that I think is interesting is that another character uh, that I would say is spot on to the 616 is Mr. Sinister um, and he's not in this book for as long as he is in X-Man but in both instances I just felt like I was reading more of the Sinister that I know and love yeah, which I guess makes sense, right? Because even in the 616, doesn't he have this kind of like mentality of um, working with Apocalypse to overthrow Apocalypse, kind of? Yeah, uh, his whole shtick is that uh, Apocalypse is essentially the benefactor to his scientific achievements. So his focus has always been on um, achieving genetic greatness, I guess you could say. Uh, and uh, Apocalypse just wanted. Well, at the at the at first, I think the agreement was Apocalypse wanted to elevate 
mutant kind as a whole, uh, which Mr. Sinister was down with. But in in the age of apocalypse here, that becomes, uh, I want to kill everyone. I want it to be a sea of death. And then whoever doesn't die in that instance, I guess they are the strongest. <laughs> so, so you can understand why Mr. Sinister, who is a, a scientist and, and like actually looking at the future of genetics, would have a problem with like the total nuclear winter that is yet to come. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think now that you're calling that out about Sinister, I, I think I would switch my stance and say Angel is probably number two. Um, because yeah, there really isn't any difference between Sinister and the 616 from what I've read and this version of Sinister. Uh, I, I mean, he's obsessed with the same things. He's, you know, like huge on Cyclops and Jean Grey and having an offspring and he even does that. And we'll talk more about that in the next, the next part of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's, he's very much the same. And to your point, Apocalypse started out with this whole, you know, mutants taking over because they were the strong and they should be the ones to, to rule. And then he kind of like um, focuses in on that whole strong will survive and pushes it into the mutant world as well, which seems to be like um, absolute power corrupting absolutely with Apocalypse and that his stance like shifts a little bit once he gets that absolute power. If he even does get that absolute power, I, I think his... Uh, mindset uh, now that it's finally being questioned in the Hickman books is a is a very good thing to deconstruct because for the longest time the idea is apocalypse is being apocalypse he is just testing uh, mutant human relations and mutant kind and the more you test them the stronger they become and uh, obviously there's been some writing in the background about celestials and death seeds and like needing to elevate mutant kind to a certain point so that we can be deemed worthy. Uh, but if you're looking at Apocalypse as a whole, or at least the Apocalypse we know since he was introduced in X-Factor, it's kind of like a one-dimensional character in a lot of respects, uh, especially this era. So it, throughout Age of Apocalypse, you just see him saying, I am Apocalypse. I want to kill everyone. It's going to be great. You can come, you know, bring a gift, right? And we'll all celebrate how much everyone is dying. Uh, and you can you can understand why that would take some people and be like, okay, well, maybe I don't want to work for Apocalypse anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could you could definitely see that. And like, I, I, I keep thinking back to the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where he's kind of taken over. Um, in the future. Oh, and he, and... he just looks disgusting and he, he, he has <laughs> strife there. Not because he likes strife, because no one likes strife. Strife doesn't uh, like strife. I don't like str- you. Don't like strife, Brian. I know you don't. Uh, no, no one likes strife. You're <laughs> no, right. no, no one, one likes no one him. likes strife. He has him there so that he can basically take over strife's body at some point and then have a better figure. Because at this point, he just looks like a like a pile of mush. Yeah, that's the thing. He's disturbingly disgusting and I guess hopped from body to body and he's in this one that's that's dying, but he has elevated himself to the place of rule and at least in that version, um, he's not just killing every mutant, right? It was just, you know, humans were more or less enslaved and the mutants all kind of were whatever in different, um, different sections, at least from what I can remember. So seeing it here... Uh, it's like the next step for him, I guess, is where he's kind of pushed that that philosophy of the strong surviving even further. 
Yeah, it, it, it definitely feels like uh, an eventuality, like there's going to be nuclear war for sure. Like w- what remaining pockets there are of human resistance across the water are going to have a, an all out with Apocalypse. And Apocalypse doesn't care at this point because he wants to see the world burn uh, under this pretense of the strong survive. So it just seems like this is how it's going to play. At, certainly by the end of the event, there's no feeling of guarantee that there isn't going to be a giant nuclear event. How did you feel towards the end of these issues? Yeah, so that's kind of the thing, right? Like in our last conversation, uh, I remember you mentioning that some of these don't uh, have a payoff in these stories. So, like, I've kind of gone into it with a very, like, skeptical mindset. I'm like, ah, this might not lead to anything. And there are a couple of things that I'm like, I feel like it has to. Um, but, yeah, with the way that uh, Factor X ended, I wasn't entirely sure of how it could play into Omega, or at least in any way substantial. But in that case, it might end up being extremely substantial. Oh, so, um, so you, but- you haven't read that part of Omega yet? Not yet. It's okay. been like 20 plus years. So I'm like, um, I literally like before generation next that we covered a couple of weeks ago that you mentioned like reading that part for the Colossus and Kitty stuff that we were going to cover. Mm-hmm. So I literally just found that without seeing anything else in it. Um, and read those parts. And then I was like, okay, I'm jumping out of this and I'm not going to see anything else. And I'm going to go into it blind once I've actually read all the other mini series. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I, I do, yeah. I will say that I do think that factor X has a satisfying payoff in Omega. Um, and, and overall, I would say that factor X is probably one of my favorite minis of all of age of apocalypse. Uh, how did you feel about the book overall? I've really enjoyed factor X. I'm not sure where I end up with it compared to everything else yet. I've still got to finish up astonishing, but I really um, found myself engrossed in it. I think that it's very well done, very self-contained. I enjoyed the the relationship dynamic between Havoc and Cyclops. Like that felt like, like uh, so you've got this big, huge, grand story in Age of Apocalypse, but they found a way to make it a very focused story in Factor X with mm-hmm. just these two characters. And I appreciate that. Like that's the thing that I like to see in movies and TV shows. Um, so I mean like, like, um, for instance, in Avengers Endgame, you have this big, huge, grandiose thing going on, but at the same time, it's like the small moments that really hit me in that one, like the dynamic between Steve and Tony um, when they go back to, um, uh, shoot, the military base, or like Clint and Natasha when they're talking about, you know, who's going to make a decision uh, without getting into too many spo- spoilerly territories. Um, that is like the stuff that really hit me or resonated with me in that because you had this big, huge thing going on, but they jump into these really small moments or these really small, um, perspectives, I guess, compared to everything else. And so factor X was really entertaining to me because it was just this very, very well done story focused on havoc and Cyclops, uh, that you kind of got to see a little bit more world building going on with, uh, McCoy, and the Bedlam Brothers and Scarlet over in heaven that all kind of had these little pieces that were kind of playing into everything else. But the real story was Havoc's jealousy towards Cyclops and Cyclops's um, desire to be good even in the midst of this. 
Yeah, um, I, I definitely found a, a lot of appeal in the heroic arc that uh, Cyclops kind of has, uh, and it, it's great that he can be both a villain and a hero in this story. And you get you get to see those moments of uh, earned payoff, I would say, with uh, Jean Grey and Nate when they kind of all collide. Um, uh, and, and I guess the bigger thing for me that I, I really liked about this is uh, when it paints uh, Alex in a certain way, it makes sense in the context of the character. Like, uh, you can you can believe that this person would have such hatred towards Scott Summers uh, and want to have this final showdown with him and, and bring him down a peg. Uh, and there's just a lot that I think this book gets right. Um, it, it had Alexas before Alexas were a thing, and they're just brains in a fish tank. You know that's that's brilliant. It's genius. <laughs> it's very the you're talking about the brain trust, right? Yes. Yeah, I love it. I, I love this idea that um, you could control this world uh, by creatively using uh, mutant abilities uh, and exerting control over the right groups. Uh, and it is interesting to see a different. Um, dimension to the age of apocalypse through the lens of like a location like heaven where you're seeing uh members who are aligned with humanity members who are aligned with apocalypse uh, there is uh, espionage going on uh, and it's clear that although uh, cyclops is doing something that's illegal by apocalypse's standards so is havoc and uh, he has this whole romantic plot that's happening at the same time that you're seeing like Maybe some good sides to him, but definitely a lot of bad sides to him. So uh, it, it was just like a really interesting book. Uh, and it's crazy because I don't think I've ever read anything else by that writer. And I don't think I've, I've seen a lot by that artist either. But it was a really great mini. I don't know. Something about it appealed to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. And um, I, okay, there were a couple of things that I really wanted to dive into from what you were saying, one of which is the whole Scarlet and Havoc relationship. Mm -hmm. So I could not, like, it's one of those things where, like, because this is such a twist on the 616 in a lot of ways, I'm sitting there trying to figure out who all these people are, and Scarlet is not something, someone I could figure out, and it drove me nuts. Um, But I really liked her character in this uh, to an extent. Like, so she's working with the Human High Council and she's working at um, Archangels or Angels, sorry, establishment known as Heaven. And she's a singer there. And I guess she's the biggest draw for them. And the Bedlam Brothers and Havoc seem to go and, and see her sing almost every single night. And Havoc has this relationship going on with her. And she ends up being pregnant, which, so, okay, we kind of talked about like, in our last episode where plot things don't really see any resolution. And I feel like that's one of them. Is that one of them? Like her being pregnant and then just kind of like, is that just kind of over after this? Well, uh, thankfully there isn't some like terrifying, uh, miscarriage element to the story, (laughs) but, 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 but yeah, you're, you're right. In this case, I I, I don't believe there is like a tremendous amount of follow up with regards to that plot point. But, um, I, I thought it was an interesting dimension to like the world they're trying to create here. I, I guess uh, the bigger issue with Scarlet's character is that she's mostly there just to be this like um, plot device of sorts, and then uh, she becomes increasingly irrelevant to to what's happening in in the story itself. Um, there's a lot of hubbub made about her and Karma being the main draws to heaven outside of Angel himself. But we don't even really have any time with Karma either. So 
Uh, I don't know. Like the heaven elements are probably the weakest part of this. And uh, I kind of wish that they had invested more time towards like what was happening in the pens and uh, the the nature of life as like this sedated uh, prisoner, which I guess conceptually was done in Prisoner X in the Age of X-Man. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I guess th- this is still one of my favorite books in the entire event, but there there are some missed opportunities, I think. Yeah. And uh, so like, I guess that would be one of them, but I do like that it's in there because to what you were kind of saying a minute ago is that Havoc and Cyclops are both kind of um, disobeying or breaking the law, so to speak, of Apocalypse. And Havoc is hypocritical enough to, you know, judge Cyclops for what he's doing instead of seeing the the um, plank in his own eye. You know, he's he's getting at the speck in Cyclops's uh, one eye. But um, <laughs> so I liked that. But <laughs> what, what did you think kind of an of, actual Cyclops? Cyclops. I mean, with with the exception of what was done in Matt Rosenberg's run, this is the first time we have like a a one eyed Cyclops. So. Like I can't. I I sat there and I'm like, um, it's like I remember really liking the look back in the day, and to some extent I still do, especially for it being the '90s. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, I don't want that look to come back. And with one eye, I feel like, wouldn't he be half as powerful? Like, yeah, I guess there's something to that. Unless he can focus more of it through one of his eyes, he seems like he's still very capable in a fight. I guess for me, what kind of throws me off is like he's still presented as this very um, straight laced, clean cut character in a lot of respects, but his face has kind of like a scruff going on and he has this long hair and uh, you can't tell if it's long because he's trying to cover the part of his face that's missing an eye or I, I don't know. It's just it's something about the way that he looks doesn't feel right to the characterization of Scott in this universe, but it's definitely a departure from the normal look for him, right? Yeah, I could I could almost see it as it being like a ploy by him to make it look like he's more of um, a badass. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I like that. That'll work. Um, and that he's actually, you know, aligned to what's going on with Sinister here. And Well, a lot of people yeah. in this universe just have like weird tattoos or scars on their faces, right? So, <laughs> yeah, or, or in the case of Wolverine, just to have their hand blasted off, um, you know, but no, yeah, that's, that's valid. And I could see where the look doesn't match the essence of the character. I can definitely see that. And, um, and a minute ago, you were also talking about the brain trust. And so that was one of my, um, favorite parts of this where like, so like, uh, Sinister has made these six, um, they're basically just brains, mm-hmm. uh, but they're telepaths and they're what keeps the, the mutants and the pins, you know, uh, from breaking out, making them feel incapable of escaping or using their powers or whatnot. And we actually get the resolution to Jean's story uh, from Weapon X in this and that she shows up. She's reaching out to Sinister because Sinister came to her in Weapon X originally and trying to recruit them t- to help them fight against against Apocalypse or he was coming there to help them fight against Apocalypse. He, he was like trying that. to help and himself basically to, to fight Apocalypse. Yeah. I think he was trying to fight Apocalypse on every front that he could. Which, which makes sense. Like if you're going to take out Apocalypse, you need to come at him from every angle possible and so Jean has returned there to give him an update on what's going on because she wants his help in kind of doing something different. And 
Um, Jean, man, like I love when they let Jean just be like this, where she's just basically a beast. Cause she just like strolls into this place. She's like, Oh, Sinister's gone. Rumors are true. And then like, um, she, what's she do? Takes like an infinite or one of the soldiers and just like knocks him out immediately. And then manipulates his body using her TK to where he's like behind of her to where it looks like he's caught her so that she can get into the pins with no problem. Um, and then she just goes on her way and eventually gets caught by McCoy. And then with McCoy, uh, you've got her. And then this is the point where Havoc confronts Cyclops and he, uh, more or less arrests him and gives him up to McCoy too. So you've got Cyclops and Jean, uh, imprisoned by McCoy. And then Jean just like straight up refuses to give in to the torture that everyone else has succumbed to. And then she is able to help, uh, herself and Cyclops escape. And it's just like, dang, dude, like Gene, Gene's where it's at in this. Um, were you, when you first read it, were you surprised that they gave her that much strength in this compared to kind of some of the things that they do in the 616 around that era? Or um, did you feel like it fit with everything you'd read before? I was surprised that she was in the book in the first place because the book was originally positioned as this um, EMF focused book. So it was supposed to be the inside look of what was happening in like the apocalypse establishment itself. Uh, and Jean was already very much present in the Weapon X book. Uh, but when she departs that after having this disagreement with Logan about uh, nuking America, basically, uh, she ends up in Cyclops's arms and uh, they reflect on that. It, they have this immediate connection and she remembers that, you know, he has been a part of this freedom fighting thing and, uh, he's like arguably the one genuinely good person that is in Apocalypse's America. So uh, they kind of come together. And in a way, it seems to work for me and her throughout the book as a independent agent uh, where she's kind of going from fight to fight and really blasting through people with the full extent of her powers. To your point, it, it works for me too, because you get the sense that this gene is not going to put up with anyone, certainly not any uh, man in her life, regardless of how stupid they're, they're, they're going to be. Right. Yeah. It felt like a very modern take uh, for something that was that long ago. And um I loved it. Like, I, I love kind of what you talk about there with her um, kind of falling back and not necessarily falling back into, but um, ending up in Cyclops's arms to some extent, because that that raises my question uh, the, or one of the things that I wanted to ask you. Do you feel like with the way that Gene and Cyclops were in this and kind of how Rogue, Magneto and Gambit are and even with the forge and storm shot that you kind of get in the backstory of X-Men, um, do you feel like there's a like this whole soulmate idea going on here in the six the Age of Apocalypse? I don't. Um, I think it kind of comes down to chemistry and the natural inclination of these characters. Um, a lot of people read Age of Apocalypse thinking that there is like an Age of Apocalypse counterpart to every character from the 616 and it is the inverse of that character. But in a lot of cases, I don't think that is the case. I think they took the spirit of each character and asked, okay, someone who behaves this way, what would they be doing in this world that's run by Apocalypse? And, um, Cyclops obviously doesn't come off as like someone who would sign up to be like 
a member of the Hitler Youth, but at the same time, he is someone who respects authority and discipline and uh, opportunities to prove himself as a leader. So it makes sense that he kind of ends up where he he is. And Gene being so um, uh, selfless and giving and thoughtful and powerful, it makes sense that she ends up as like a freedom fighter. And uh, even the way things end between Logan and Jean, it makes sense given this characterization of Logan and kind of the spots he ended up because there was no Xavier there for him uh, to set him on the right path, uh, that that things play out the way that they do. Um, so I think if you're just looking at each of these characters in terms of like, what is the spirit of their character? The way that the narrative of their lives was contorted to fit this alternate universe it's still kind of there's like a through line there you know what i mean yeah definitely and i i really think that you um i think you really hit it on the head there where most people that that come into the age of apocalypse they're expecting it to be the inverse but it's really not it's these authors and writers they must have collaborated a lot to really analyze uh, at least the main characters, what their lives would be like if they wouldn't have had Xavier at, at the point that they had Xavier. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you definitely, you get that with Cyclops. Um, cause he is that, you know, like Sinister came in and took over when he was younger and filled that father role as opposed to Xavier. But at the same time, his whole being the leader, he's the firstborn son. Um, you know, he's Corsair's kid and he's just, he just has that mentality about him that he's kind of, He's a Boy Scout in some ways, but not in the way that most people who watch the 90s cartoon feel that he is. Right. Um, yeah. So, and he, and he kind of still fills that role here. And uh, I, I like what you were saying there, where it's more about chemistry um, between these personalities mm-hmm. than it is so much like a uh, they're destined for each other. Um yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, and and I, I guess from a, like a relationship perspective, my dad always used to say like there is chemistry and timing. And you can have chemistry with someone, you may not have the right timing. So, in some of these cases, like you think of like Rogue Gambit and Magneto in particular, um, there's obvious chemistry between Rogue and Magneto uh, throughout that whole Savage Land era in the 616. And given the right environment uh, and the fact that his magnetism powers allow him to touch her, I could definitely see the two of them hooking up and her having a child from that. And I can definitely see uh, Gambit being really miffed about that. I, I can't <laughs> see Gambit ever being Magneto's best friend, even in a world where there's no Charles Xavier. Xavier. I feel like Magneto wouldn't have that much time for Remy. But that's just me. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> one of the things that I'm I'm with you on that. There's like no way that that Okay, so of all the things that go on in the Age of Apocalypse, that's probably the most shocking one the, of the, all. The one thing that's Magneto too hard to stomach. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Magneto like, nope. and, and Gambit were best friends, yeah. And that, like, everyone says it, like, oh, he's your best friend. Oh, he used to be your best friend. I can't believe you did that to the guy who was your best friend. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. Uh, But but, but there was a lot of thought put into this universe. And um, one of the great things is that each book kind of does give you a different perspective as to how this whole world kind of comes together. Uh, And without reading some of these books, you might think that the scale is a little bit larger or a little bit smaller than it actually is, too. Mm, Very good point. 
Very good point. So, um, we, uh, speaking of other books, we do have another book to discuss. So before we jump into X-Men, were there any other final thoughts or things you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? No, other than saying that you were a genius to pair up uh, Factor X and X-Men because the ties between them are, are so tight. Um, I think this book also kind of introduces the X-Men series as part of Age of Apocalypse, too. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and, okay. So this is what's ridiculous. I have had insane luck throughout the course of doing this podcast because I don't read ahead. So when I throw all this together, I'm just like, mm, maybe these will go together. And then I throw them together and then it tends to work like the gamut and externals and weapon X, the, there was, it was a whole, the both were focused on betrayal by someone within the team. Mm-hmm. Um, which was ridiculous. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that worked. And then um, this one, obviously, they're like direct ties left and right. And I was just kind of throwing them together. And then, um, yeah, but yeah, they're all like connected in these weird ways. And I've had it happen with some of the other stuff that we've done too in the past with like some of the Spider-Man stuff that I've kind of partnered up here and there in Avengers. But um, surprisingly, it seems to always work, uh, which is crazy to me. But hey, I've just been lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the, there was one thing I wanted to, to kind of just make note of, uh, you mentioned not being very familiar with the artist and the writer from this, the writer, I am not very familiar with at all. I think this might be the only thing I've ever read by this writer, but the art, uh, Steve Epting, mm-hmm. he was on the Avengers for a while. Um, for some of the stuff we've been covering on the show. So I was pretty familiar with him. And when I saw his name attached, I'm like, all right, the art's going to be pretty solid in this. I was pretty happy with it. Oh, that's good. Um, <clears throat> so yeah so this is the part where i make some obnoxious comment about austin queuing up the second intro which he does now for some time a mutant group of traveling stage actors have been the home of nate gray these travelers are led by forge who has taken on a parental and trainer role with nate a mysterious man named essex joins their group and nate is drawn to him tension boils between forge and essex over nate's affection as nate continues to listen to him instead of forge Despite Forge's warnings, Nate uses his mutant powers, which is sensed by Apocalypse. He sends a team of his mutants after Nate, but the real threat is revealed to be the mysterious Essex, otherwise known as Mr. Sinister. With his identity exposed, will Sinister's plan of using Nate to slay Apocalypse come to fruition, or will Forge succeed in stopping him? Okay, that's the second intro. Haha, <laughs> perfect. Great job, Austin. You're amazing. Um no. Um, but okay. Yeah. So now we're going to shift gears and talk about X-Men and kind of what you were talking about earlier is that there are like direct ties to, um, this and factor X as well as like some subtle ties. Um, the direct ties obviously being Mr. Sinister. So in this one, um, X-Men is, uh, Nate Gray, I guess. I don't even know if they call him Gray. They just call him Nate. Nate, right? Well, no, he is mentioned as being like, um, Nathaniel, um, I think they just give him the full name at one point, Nathaniel Gray, but but it is Nate okay. Gray. It's it's X Man, and he is this universe's version of Cable, uh, without the uh, transmode virus or the uh, techno organic virus. Depending on which books you read at the time, yes, it would either be the transmode or techno organic or techno organic yeah. transmode virus. Um, it gets really, uh, murky when you talk about Cable's history, but yeah, so he is the, the Age of Apocalypse version of Cable, and he has been hanging out with, a, a group, a Forge Toad, 
Um, gosh, who else? Grizzly, right? Was Grizzly one of them? So it's uh, Forge Mastermind, and this Mastermind is actually mute. Uh, Toad, who is extremely intelligent and speaks almost <laughs> like Shakespearean English. Uh, Which is amazing. Brute, uh, X-Man, and Sauron. And then there's also Sonique, who is this version of uh, Siren. Yes. So that uh, that constitutes this um, traveling group of actors, right? Is that, I think that's what yeah, It's like doing. a theater troupe. They go from uh, town to town. And basically the way it's explained is that um, Apocalypse had all of these cullings done to reduce the human population. Um, and there are still some pockets of humanity in different towns. A lot of them are presented as being like very anti-mutant. Um, so it isn't really on display that they're not your average freak show. They're actually mutants that are doing this. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's the whole thing. They're they're uh, effectively acting as resistance members against Apocalypse, but they're not directly aligned with the X-Men. And uh, I think they enjoy the theatrics as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. And like, so what you have here is uh, they go to one of these towns and they put on one of these shows that you were kind of talking about there a second ago. And... Um, they, they see these humans, see them and they're like, there's no way they can not be mutants. And they kind of approach them. And, uh, Nate Gray decides to use his telepathy on them. And, you know, it's basically like, these are not the droids or what you're looking for. And they walk away and Forge gets upset because Forge has taken on this like parental role, um, with Nate. Uh, he's, he's really trying to get him to not use his mutant powers yeah. because Nate is a telepath. And what we've kind of learned in factor X and, and X-Man is that, the telepaths that have existed, Apocalypse has tracked down to try and kill all of or them. Or hire and uh, turn them into Alexas, yes. basically. <laughs> yep. Track down, uh, kill them, or hire them. And he, is, like Shadow King as well, and um, Forge is concerned that by using his telepathy, he's going to like basically send out a beacon and Apocalypse will be able to track him down. And Forge is concerned for Nate's safety. Which is fair, because um, that's so, exactly what happens every time that he yeah, uses... <laughs> Every time that he uses his powers, but he can't help it because at the same time with X-Man, there is this whole Jesus Christ thing going on. Um, he is Omega powered because he doesn't have um, uh, any limits to his telekinetic or uh, telepathic ability because he's not constantly trying to restrain this techno-organic virus in the Age of Apocalypse universe. Uh, and at the same time, he had experienced a virgin birth. Uh, his mother was technically a test tube, even though it's explained to be this version of uh, Jean Grey's genes, as well as Cyclops's genes with zero consent. Uh, and, li <laughs> and, and like Jesus, uh, X-Men is betrayed by a disciple, and uh, he's intended to save the world, but that still hasn't happened yet. So, <laughs> Whoa, yeah. Uh, okay. not, not to be Fair too point. shady or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you tied all that together because in the future, uh, they they tie into this Jesus complex that age, that X-Man has um, heavily for Age of X-Man and that Uncanny X-Men run mm. by Kelly Thompson, Matt Rosenberg, and was it Ed Brisson? Yeah. Was that the other Ed one? Ed Brisson, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely, um, this is definitely the early parts of that complex coming to the forefront. And like you said, he can't help but use his mutant powers. And he's in a training situation with Forge, where Forge is trying to teach him to fend for himself without his powers, but he ends up using them. And again, Shadow King and Apocalypse know exactly where he's at now because he keeps using his powers. So Apocalypse sends Domino and Caliban and someone else. Um, 
after them to, uh, to you know, to go see if he's going to join them mm-hmm. or to kill him. And uh, we we also, in the midst of all this, find this man named Essex, uh, who later is revealed to be Mr. Sinister. It's, o- it's obvious uh, from the start, to be fair, because... Yeah, it's always obvious with Sinister because they put the diamond on <laughs> his forehead. They put the diamond on his forehead. And his name is is Ethics. And uh, Essex was his surname when he was uh, a human. So uh, pretty obvious when he shows up that he is who he is. Uh, Brute actually calls it out at one point that he, he knows that this guy is familiar, but he's not sure where. Uh, and then it's this whole game of like, we have this uh, traveling troop uh, and this stranger who's now walking amongst them. Uh, and, uh, what's going to happen next? Uh, and what, what actually does happen is a lot of death. <laughs> uh, kind of like an Excalibur where, uh, when we talked to that, there was a whole lot of death. There was a lot of death. Um, yeah. You have, um, Domino and her team coming out after them and you get Essex, like you were saying a minute ago, uh, obvious to us that it's Mr. Sinister, but not so much to them because they're not as familiar with Sinister. And so, um, eventually brute calls sinister out. He's like, Oh, Hey, I remember you. You're the one who was messing with all the people in the pins and sinister kills him. And then that's when Domino and them show up. And then there's this whole fight there and Caliban gets like eaten and it's just, it's brutal the whole time, um, between everybody. But the, the one that's the most important death in all of this is there's been this strained relationship between Forge and Nate because Forge is very overprotective of Nate and Nate feels like he's not letting him grow up. Um, and so there's this, you know, this tension between them and Forge just wants him to know basically how much he loves him and how much he cares for him. But before they can really get to that point, um, Essex and, or Sinister and Forge have a confrontation and Sinister uh kills forge unfortunately mm-hmm. um so it's a, it's a very very trying thing and so what we have connecting our factor x and our x-man stories is family drama on top of sinister and this was a whole lot of family drama with nate and forge and it does end pretty sadly between forge and nate yeah i i definitely agree with that breakdown uh and and i thought the relationship with forge was great too uh it's definitely nice to see that character um it's still kind of in a leadership position because obviously he was a, a, a team leader for different X teams for a number of years. But um, to see him kind of tutor Nate and use his, uh, I, I think they're kind of alluding to the fact that he was able to telepathically communicate with Nate using some sort of inva- invention that he created because he had those green squiggly thought bubbles. I don't know if you picked up on that. Oh, yeah. It had that psionic look to the way that those thought bubbles are usually drawn. And obviously, Forge is not a telepath. Uh, But I I think he had figured out some way to communicate with Nate in the past before all of this stuff kind of went down. Uh, But yeah, like I said, when we were originally talking about this over text, like it's a really interesting team that we have here. You know, Forge, Mastermind, Toad, Brute, X-Man, Sauron, Siren, and immediately they either start getting disabled or they start dying. And uh, and it, it seems like such wasted opportunity after opportunity. And it all kind of bubbles up as um, uh, Sinister having this confrontation with Nate. Now, obviously, we have this uh, opportunity for Nate to get involved in shutting down this whole facility around the Infinites. And we get some background as to what the Infinites are. Um so that was kind of like a good addition to the story, I felt. But outside of that, it's just this sad 
tale of um, basically every single personal connection that Nate Gray had uh, kind of falling to the wayside as a result of Sinister's meddling. Hmm. Mm, man, very, very good stuff there with what you're saying there, like every relationship that he had. And so I, I guess in a way, it almost felt very much like um, a zombie show in which you will have um, all of these additional characters that are in it, and they're literally there just to die. Mm. And that's what it felt like with um, most of the team that is put together in this. And what's really kind of sad uh, beyond just that is that there were some really interesting premises behind some of them. Like Toad, for instance, I felt like his, his age of apocalypse counterpart was just so uh, refreshing. Um, and I find it kind of amusing cause it's almost like, okay, so when he was recruited by Magneto to, in the 616, did he just like, like, you know, um, emasculate him and constantly put him down and make him feel worthless and dumb and stupid. And now in age of apocalypse, he doesn't have that, uh, because Magneto has been off doing something different. Like what, what happened in Toad's life that shifted from like, um, who he is in the 616 to this just by Xavier not being around. I don't know, but they, they have that one moment where he's fighting with Caliban and Caliban has the same sort of, uh, witty repartee going on that Toad does in the middle of a battlefield and they're reflecting on the fact that, you know, maybe in a different life they could be friends. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, I want to read that book. I want you to <laughs> I want you to publish a 616 book where it's just Caliban and Toad having, like, intellectual debates with each other over English poetry or something like that. Um, but, but all of these good ideas are stymied by this uh, overwhelming focus on Nate and Nate's future. And it is very much like heroic story um and and like i said even the parts of it that add something to the universe it, it doesn't feel like it it pays off to me at least in terms of the payout that we get in omega um i don't want to spoil it for you but it it, it kind of ends with him having a confrontation with one of the horsemen and then obviously him showing up in the 616. So as far as like the conclusion of this event itself, he wasn't the central player that Mr. Sinister intended him to be when he was like scraping up the genetics of Jean Grey and Scott Summers. So I have two takes on that, like one uh, positive take and one negative take. So the positive that I have with that is I think it's kind of interesting that they would um, position these things or, or make it appear as if these pieces of the puzzle are going to be extremely vital and then they end up not being because that's kind of a realistic take uh, that happens in life. Mm. But at the same time, the negative that I have from that is in the 616, it's pretty clear that Cable has these ties to Apocalypse and is very destined to have this showdown with Apocalypse. And so we get an opportunity here to see what a transmode virus free cable could do against apocalypse and it sounds to me what you're saying is we don't get that so in that sense it's it's really bothersome to me yeah well and i don't want to ruin the experience for you brian of course but but at the same time um i want you to temper your expectations around nate gray uh <laughs> because as i said before we started recording uh as much as i think this mini has some good stuff to it uh nate gray as a character is a power abyss that just sucks from every angle. And until they did Age of X-Men, I legitimately don't think he had a solid appearance in any X-Men book. Dang. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, 
I've heard people talk about X-Men, that series, and they would probably mostly, if not all of them, agree with you, which is surprising because that series lasted as so long. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe it was probably shipping well just because it was an X-Men book uh, and all X-Men books seemed to ship well back in the day. Well, it helped that this really was like an alternative version of Cable uh, and Cable sold very well. Cable continues to sell very well. There have been years where Cable himself has competed with the X-Men in terms of sales. So, uh, Holy crap. Oh yeah, it's crazy to think about. Uh, Cable is uh, similar to Wolverine, although not to the same scope, is one of those perennial characters that Marvel can lean on to, to ship different units. Uh, regardless of what the creative team is on it. Uh, and, and like Deadpool, he's kind of found a bit of a niche audience outside of the X-Men sphere too. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big cable fan, so I'm happy to hear that. Um, but I am surprised. I'm not going to lie to you because I've read a lot of the cable books, especially in the 21st century. And they, uh, some are good, some less so good. Yeah. Um, uh, Zach B. Thompson and Lonnie Nadler, the people who did, um, the, I guess the original structural work on uh, the Age of X-Men, they actually wrote a miniseries that was around Cable, uh, and it was set in the far-flung future uh, when it was just Nathan Dayspring, and he's a teenager. Uh, and it was kind of a graphic horror approach that they took. There's like a lot of body horror going on in the antagonist. Uh, that is 100% worth your time. So I hope you definitely check that out. Was that during the resurrection? Um, I think it was like the third arc that followed right after that first uh, resurrection arc. Because they had that first arc uh, that lasted five issues. And it was about um, space age weapons in ancient Japan, <laughs> among other things. Uh, uh, and, then, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then the next five issues after that, um, it was uh, drawn by Joe Marin. And I only know this uh, because... It had this one picture of um, the 616 blink, the one that blinked out of existence when we were reading Phalanx Covenant. Um, She came back in that series uh, and she looked like her waist might have been three inches in total uh, because they used the same 90s design that she previously had. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then um, the, the last arc that was after that i think was the one that zach and lonnie had and it was spectacular like i wouldn't just recommend it to a cable fan i would recommend it to anyone who's a fan of um well horror in particular dang so now i'm gonna have to read that i think i think i own one of the issues of that but it was the final one and i didn't read it uh because i knew it was the last of the arc i think it was like cable 159 or something with gene and cyclops on the cover with him yeah, and, and, and it's so, kind of a, a nice return to that whole um, uh, red and uh, slim timeline. So you you were a fan of the uh, the adventures of uh, Cyclops and Phoenix, right? Yep, yeah, I was. So so I think you in particular would get a lot out of it. Then I will add that to my list to read while we are on break from this podcast, when I can actually read things that are not part of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the only time, really. So it's like a it's a nice little stretch for me to take some a time. A nice off little to, stretch. Uh, well, yeah. To get <laughs> one thing before we we stop talking about the plot here, um, I really want to focus on the infinites for a minute. Do you see them as like this universe's answer to Sentinels almost? Um. Yes, kind of. Um. In some ways, uh, also very red shirtish, and that you know they just kind of 
die pretty easily in most of the stuff that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think this universe's answer to the Sentinels is a is a good take on it. Um, but I do feel that most of the time they just cannot hold uh, up against what we see. And I guess maybe part of that is because most of the mutants that we're seeing are alpha class mutants. Well, and this is also so, supposed to be an, an extreme event with a lot of action. And uh, anytime that's happening, they need a, a a villain that they can destroy pretty easily, like a robot almost, you know, <laughs> like yeah. so, something that doesn't come across as, as human per se. Um, and and what's, yeah, they're the foot clan. Right. Uh, but what's interesting <laughs> about the infinites is that the more you look into their origin, the more grisly the entire age of apocalypse universe comes across. Um, so they were created by sinister and McCoy. So dark beast, from the genetic material of captured mutants and humans either deemed unworthy of living or executed for opposing apocalypse. And it's mentioned in one of these books that we read that uh, for McCoy, there was like a ratio of a hundred mutants for or a hundred mutants or humans for one infinite in terms of like getting enough genetic material to basically replicate an alpha class mutant. Uh, So you have these cullings that are taking place across America where where people are dying in droves. They're being killed off by these infinite soldiers. And those soldiers were themselves like previously a hundred different people. Isn't that crazy? When you put it like that, yeah, that's pretty messed up. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's really grisly. It's like a culling that forces a culling that forces a culling. And uh, McCoy, like long after Sinister has left the building, is like, I need more bodies. I need you to keep bringing me dead bodies because my research isn't going to slow down. So the more you lo- the more you look at that part of it, the more you get the sense that it's not just the fact that apocalypse is a violent despot who's going to get all of america nuked it's the fact that he really did build his ideal nation on a sea of skeletons uh mutant and human alike it's crazy it's insanely crazy and i think that is in x-man number two i believe when essex gets x-man and the rest to go attack one or not attack but infiltrate one of these facilities Mm. uh that you're talking about and what's um what made me picture it even more is because you mentioned the sea of skeletons and inside of that building there's either a bunch of skeletons or the skeletons are there by the added by the artist to give us they're just hanging out yeah Yeah. they're a part of the scenery Um, yeah, they were. They're were like, we're just gonna throw some skeletons it's over the here. The age you of apocalypse. Cool. Who doesn't have skeletons? You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have a thousand skeletons hanging out in your room, then like, what are you even well, doing? No, no one has um, like a, a lawn or a driveway anymore. They just have a, a bunch of skeletons in the street. <laughs> <laughs> they they use the skeletons like gravel. That's what oh it is. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> That's grizzly. That's grizzly. That that just yeah. That that's the worst thing I've ever said on the show. No, um, no. Uh, maybe it is. It's it's close. It's up there. I'm glad I'm I was here lie. for this that's, moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely up there. Um, yeah. So uh, that um, that is a a horrific thing to think about. And as far as apocalypse and his mentality that he's doing that, and that McCoy and Sinister are involved in that. Um, man, just to think about, you know, the people that are, that are capturing these, these humans, 
were the ones before them. Yeah. Um, that's messed up. Yeah, but um, but it's one of those things very, that it's like they they have these like hints of like the larger universe that are kind of glossed over for the sake of what's ever happening on the interpersonal side. Uh, and I think that's kind of where this book suffers because you get a sense that there's a really strong relationship between X-Man and uh, Forge, obviously, definitely X-Man and uh, Sonique uh, and Sauron for sure. But we don't really get to see much of his relationship with Mastermind at all uh, or even Brute and Toad. So when they die, you're not really getting a sense of the scale or the stakes. You're just getting a sense that, yeah, Domino is a badass and she can probably kill anyone she wants to kill, right? Yeah, and I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about it feeling like, you know, a zombie TV show or whatever it is where you have these extra characters that you know they're just there to die. So there's no level of attachment. And I think what's even more telling of that and what you're saying there about not being able to get any attachment to them is that when I was um, thinking about this, the show. Um, so like I read this, I've had to read these like way in advance before we record because there are so many of these that I have to have to read um, for this show. Uh, so I read this one probably a week and a half ago, um, maybe a little more. And I was just sitting there and I'm like, okay, so I know X-Men was hanging out as an actor with Forge and I know there were people in that group. Who the heck were they? Like, I could not remember for the life of me. Like, Mastermind, Toad, Brute. Like, I had no idea they were even part of it. Like, I totally forgot because they were just that non-important that if you don't if you don't really focus and you don't make an effort to remember them being in this, that weeks from now you're not even going to remember they were part of it. Mm. Like, like that's kind of a sad telling thing about the story. Um, but the stuff that I will remember is like the whole dynamic between forge and Nate and their relationship, how whiny Nate was in general and how he reminded me of a teenage kid, um, or a teenage brat. And he and is supposed to be like teenaged. Like that, that is what he's supposed to be like cable, but a teenager basically. Which makes sense, um, even though he doesn't necessarily look like a teenager. Like I don't know any teenagers. He, al- he also like doesn't that, necessarily but... <laughs> look like Cable, if we're being fair. <laughs> Very true. Uh, not even Kid Cable, which I feel like Kid Cable should probably look like him. But whatever. But, but again, um, this version of Cable, you know, technically the mom was a test tube and the dad was like two piles of genetic <laughs> material. You know what I mean? Like so, like where where is the line, right? Fair, fair point, fair assessment there. So, um, but I'll, I will remember that part of it, you know, those, that relationship, but I'll also remember the revenge, uh, so to speak that Nate gets after he finds Forge dead by Sinister Mm -hmm. and Sinister makes this plea to him about how, Hey, you know, I've got, um, this plan to take down apocalypse. You're a huge part of it. I've known about Scott and Gene having these perfect genes before. And like, that's, you know, when he expresses to Nate, like, Hey, I was a part of this, uh, uh, making you who you were. And I accelerated your growth and yet you escaped from my pins and, um, your own dad actually, you know, helped you escape. So this was showing like Cyclops helping people escape even before, um, and Sinister knowing about it, right. And not doing anything about it and trying to, to play it off to keep him from getting caught by apocalypse, which I thought was a great piece of information to have. Um, and so Nate goes out, uh, or Nate hears all this and still kills Sinister, like, because he killed Forge. 
Like just says, yeah, and and there's a lot of like um, not necessarily overwrought narration, but a lot of focus in the narrative on um, like how he's kind of passed his own line in terms of what's acceptable, and he's made a, a decision that could be characterized as evil. Um, what I thought was the best moment in this book, and, and like I said, there isn't a huge amount of resolution to uh, Nate's character or Nate's arc in Omega, is the way that um, things resolve, I guess, the arc for Sinister himself. Because uh, we see him die, or at least this version of Sinister die at the end of this event. And the way he talks, like he believes that this is the last time he's going to live, which is such a rare concept for Sinister in general. Very rare. And just to hear like to the, um, the panels there or the descriptions there are so phenomenal and so well done, especially like the whole, um, way that it ends with, and no one was there to mourn him or whatever. Um, very gripping stuff to show like, Hey, this dude made some very evil decisions in his entire life. And that will get you in a situation where you have no one when you are dying. That does raise an interesting point though, because like, you don't see Scott really mourn the loss of a father figure the way you'd almost expect him to. Um, he kind of is like, okay, he's gone. I'm in charge. And then he just kind of walks on with his life. Uh, <laughs> whereas I kind of almost expect him to be like the one character in Sinister, Sinister's sphere that would actually want to kind of maybe be there. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying because it was something that I noticed with Factor X where um, Cyclops doesn't really seem to care that Sinister isn't there. He's like, oh, he left us. That sucks. And then he just steps up and does what he needs to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the 616, anytime Xavier's gone, it feels like Scott sits there and like second guesses everything he's doing. And is he living up to Xavier's dream or Xavier's thoughts of him or whatever? Um, But there was none of that with his connection with Sinister in this world. And I wonder how much it is because Scott was trying to do the right thing. So I, with the, I actually have a no prize answer for this too. Ooh, yeah. Okay. okay. So uh, in the six one six, Scott's whole thing is uh, fatherhood abandonment. So he has Corsair, his father, who uh, it technically doesn't ab- abandon him. He's abducted by the Shi'ar, uh, and it looks like he dies in a plane crash. And then Scott goes to a, an orphanage for a while and is treated poorly by a father figure who turns out to be sinister in disguise uh, and eventually runs away and uh, is uh, kind of taken in, kind of abducted by a man named Jack Winters. I don't know if you know of Jack Winters. Yeah, because he turned to diamond. Yes, so similar to Emma Frost in a very <laughs> ironic way, he is uh, a criminal with some telepathic ability who can also turn into diamond or at least he can only one way turn into diamond he cannot not turn back from diamond to human (laughs) so so he found a way to turn himself to diamond but i don't think he could reverse it uh and then uh when we look past that there's several occasions where uh xavier abandons uh scott and he's always wrought with these fathership uh, issues for his own children and leadership issues with his team and life decision issues for himself and his family members and it always kind of colludes with a father figure abandoning him and in this universe there was no xavier and i don't 
really see Corsair being in the picture with respect to his sons. So you just have Sinister, and he's been underneath Sinister's wing his entire life, so he hasn't had all of these repeated moments of abandonment trauma. He's just lost Sinister the one time, and by that point, he had already become disillusioned with Apocalypse's whole regime. I can... I can... um actually be okay with that assessment like i feel like that's a a pretty fair uh description of why he would respond the way that he did with uh with sinister and not caring because like you said he's he's disassociated with the regime and he feels like sinister is a part of it and he hasn't struggled with all the different abandonment issues i had totally forgot about jack winters until you brought that up how how Um, could you ever forget about him (laughs) I know, right? Like, he's like the most important character from 1965. He's he's in like one whole issue, you know? And I think he was kind of retconned out of reality, in fairness. But um, the fact that our Scott from the 616 has had so much trauma and so much family abandonment in his life. And this version of Scott, he, he definitely has a lot of family issues, but he hasn't seen abandonment the same way R. Scott has. It kind of makes sense that his reaction to Sinister leaving isn't the same as it would be if it was Xavier in the 616. Uh, it's just kind of weird to see at the same time, you know? Yeah, it messes with your head because seeing it, you're like, no, that's not really how Scott would react. But at the same time, when you kind of break it down the way in which you did and piece it all together, it actually makes perfect sense that that, that, that is how he would react um, dang, I like that. Yeah. Man. Well, See? and the dream was always to get a no prize from Marvel, you know, just an empty envelope, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think they do those anymore. Uh, probably not. I don't know. I, I haven't heard of them doing that anymore, but they should bring that back. Mm. Yeah, they totally should. Um, Okay, so let's see. Um, I want to make sure that we've at least discussed every major plot point in this, and I feel like we have. Um. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Character designs. What would you think of all the, the character designs in this, from Forge to Toad to to all of them? Domino. Um, I loved Domino for some reason. Seeing her in red, I thought was really cool. Um, I I thought that Toad looked really uh, terrifying in a way that was kind of interesting. It was a very like exaggerated cartoon version of him. Uh, and I kept wondering what was going on with Mastermind because it looked like he had gone through a lobotomy, maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Forge had this amazing, like, robotic claw. Like, I wanted his entire arm. Uh, so uh, whoever whoever <laughs> focused on his design did some very cool stuff. I wasn't as impressed with uh, X-Man, and Sauron was just like a green pterodactyl that's that's his whole deal <laughs> you know yeah yeah so, yep. so sauron was like the same yeah and and uh sonique what i don't even know what the point of calling her sonique was i'm I actually don't even know what the point of having Teresa in this book was um because she just kind of sits by the campfire next to nate a few times and he's like i gotta go it's it's my destiny to kill Apocalypse, so uh, <laughs> you need to hang out here with this disabled uh, pterodon and not die because you are all I have left. <laughs> it was it was one of those um, maybe maybe they were trying to show that teens uh, you know live by the mantra of bros before hoes or something. I'm not really sure uh, what the purpose of having her in it was, other than it, what was okay. 
So Sonic was Siren, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's who that is. And Siren is Banshee's daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in this one, she's like thought to be human and her powers come out during a culling, I think. And there's like an old man that's with her that's clearly not Banshee. And it is, it almost comes off like he's meant to be her dad. Did you get that vibe too? I didn't get that vibe. I wasn't really focused on the old man. Yeah, because he's like, I'll never let them get you, Teresa, or whatever her name. I can't even remember. That's right, right, well, Teresa? And, and I, I don't know how much you know of the books. I haven't done like a ton of reading around her history, but my understanding is that um, although she has a closer relation to Sean Cassidy, she was raised uh, in the 616 by Black Tom, or yeah, Black Tom Cassidy. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right, she was. So maybe and um and and he raised her in in a bunch of like dubious fatherhood uh, villainy kind of ways. So I I don't know. <laughs> I I the entire time she was in this book, I was like, why are you here? What are you doing? Like, <laughs> are your power is going to come uh, in use at some point, and that never really paid off. No, no, it didn't. I kind of got the like that was my whole feeling about everybody besides Forge and Sinister in this this series. Oh well, um, Mastermind friggin' eats it. Like one panel just goes by and you see this blast of flame and what was his skeleton? And I was like, I was like, <laughs> damn, <laughs> they are not playing around. <laughs> no, no, there were some very brutal deaths in this book. Um, whereas in like Excalibur, it, it, most of it seemed to happen off panel. Um, but if I remember right, you know, I've, yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, I think we've covered all the main pieces of this one. Are there any final thoughts you want to get into before we do ratings? Um, no, no final okay. thoughts. That was, that was clear. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I guess I, I, my that. only final thoughts, you can cut out that part that I just mentioned, but Nope, I want that to stay. Oh, great. To stay. Yeah. Austin, listen to me right now. That stays. Per- perfect. <laughs> so my only final thoughts would be, I, I really appreciated the way that uh, the books did kind of finally come together towards the end, uh, because there are some intersections between uh, Gene and Scott and uh, Nate, and they, they have this moment when they're all kind of rushing towards the same endpoint where they uh, recognize that they have this innate connection towards each other. Um, and definitely that chemistry is there. So maybe in a, in a different time, in a different place, they could be a family. Obviously, in the age of apocalypse, everything is terrible. Um, so none of that can happen here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't be a good dad there. Um, uh, but, you know, up until recently, Scott wasn't a very good dad anyway. But, that is a that is um, a matter of debate, sir. <laughs> <laughs> a debate for another time. So, <clears throat> yeah, I ah, I can't believe we didn't even talk about that. But yeah, that was one of the the finer points of both books was that uh, those interactions. Um, well, wait, sorry, of X Men. Sorry, yes, um, yes. Okay, so <laughs> ratings. We'll get into ratings now. It's like really late for you so sorry that uh, it's so late for you where you're at i apologize no worries. but that's the price you pay um to be on on the show <laughs> anyway ratings uh if this is the first time you've ever listened to the show i can't believe you've made it this far and didn't stop go back and start age of apocalypse from the first part and get caught up but the way the ratings work are one to three is ban it from marvel canon it should never it never should have existed four to seven is borrow it um, find a way to get it from the library, Hoopla, or read it on Marvel Unlimited, some way to read it. And 8 to 10 is buy it, own it, put it in your long box, treasure it for always and ever. Um, 
Let's see. Let's start with Factor X. I'll let you rate that one first, then I'll rate X-Man first. Um, where do you fall on Factor X? I would give it a very strong 8.5. Can we do that rating? Yes, we can. 8.5 is what I would give it, because uh, it is so great on its own legs, and it does so much to fill in the world of uh, the Age of Apocalypse. There's just a few opportunities that I think are missed, and I think those times where they... uh, focus quite a bit on what's happening at heaven and maybe not so much at uh, the pens and what's happening in like the prison system that's operated by the EMF. Like um, there, it, there is just uh, more to this story that I wish we could have gotten, but otherwise I think it's great. Yeah. I would um, fall at an eight on it. I really enjoyed this one. Um, it's a lot of fun throughout as far as the heaven piece. Yeah. Having more of the pins would have uh, probably been better for the book or to have uh, more relevant things come from the heaven stuff uh, to make it feel worth it or earned uh, could have helped jump this from an eight to a nine or an eight and a half that you rated it to a nine or a 10. Um, but yeah, I really love Steve Epting's art. I, I, grew to love him on the Avengers stuff that we've been covering. So I was really thrilled to see him doing an X-Men book and enjoyed it throughout. Um, and I, I'm a sucker for Cyclops and Jean. So that helped as well. Um, so, okay. X-Men. All right. Now here's, here's the thing. I went into this with the lowest of lowest expectations because before we read it, I told you which ones I, I was like, Hey, can you be on this? Can you be on this? Can you be on this? And X-Man was one of them. And you were like, God, I hate X-Man. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so this is going to be really bad. Um, then I read it and I'm like, well, that wasn't as terrible as I was expecting. So I think my, my rating is probably a little skewed by that. Um, I think if I were to give it an honest rating, it would be like a 5.5 or a 6. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I feel like it's about on par with Excalibur. Um overall, even though I know parts of it aren't going to be super important, I still enjoyed the Forge and Nate dynamic. Like I honestly can sit there and relate to Forge. I'm like, my 11 year old sounds like Nate Gray. This is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so I I think there was definitely relatable moments in there for parents of preteen or teen children, uh, especially. And uh, I think that's what appealed to me. I also liked seeing more of how um, Sinister re- reacts or acts in this world. So yeah, that's where I would be with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I might have been a bit harsh on X-Man, uh, but I, I dislike the character more than I do this mini. Um, so I would give this mini probably a solid six. And I would agree that it kind of fills that same void that... Um, Excalibur did in the sense that it kind of clumsily misses some of the bigger ideas that it has to play with in favor of focusing on like a very personal story between a few key players. Uh, And as much as I love Sinister, uh, his role was kind of obvious throughout the story. And we missed seeing uh, this interesting team actually play off of each other a little bit. And, uh, yeah, the, the Jesus angle for X-Man himself isn't super interesting to me. So there's definitely parts of this book that I would have changed if I was on the editing team or if I was writing it. Um, but not the worst of the age of apocalypse. I'll say that much. 
Okay. Um, now that we've covered ratings and everything else, uh, Trent, where can they find you on social media again? Uh, you can find me at InstaTrent on Twitter. Uh, you can also find my personal blog at ContinuityNod.com. Uh, and I'm all over the place as far as articles. So you can find most of my articles for the different freelancing work that I do at my clippings page as well. Perfect. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Marvel underscore mythos, or you can email me at Marvel mythos podcast at gmail.com. And we have one final episode left for this season. It is the end of the age of apocalypse. We're going to be talking amazing X-Men, astonishing X-Men and uh, Omega all in one episode next week. Um, So yeah, be on the lookout for that and we'll see you next time. You still there? I am. I apologize. So oh, no worries. That. Um, yeah. So apparently, um, you know, it's almost Christmas. So my wife's trying to to uh, set up Christmas lights outside. Yep. And whoa, holy crap! My I set the uh, whoops. I set my headphones down on the, the keyboard apparently, and it put a whole lot of periods. Um, on my word thing now i have 64 pages between things that's that's fantastic that's awesome (laughs) um but no so she's setting up christmas lights outside and she was like just text me if he wakes up and i'll go get him i'm like okay that's cool and i text her and she did so womp uh, womp yeah, no, I'm like, come on, it's I'm on the phone with Trent Seeley and he's saying some really good stuff. And if it were Travis, I'd just be like, Yo, Travis, hold on, suck it, and then I would go. Oh, but I was I was I was getting all rambly on you, so I apologize <laughs> for that. Find out now on Marvel Mythos. How'd you like that, Austin? You didn't? You're not even going to leave that in there? What the crap, dude? Like, I thought we were friends. You know, it's because you're playing Death Stranding right now, isn't it? Yeah, I know. This is pathetic. I'm, like, basically doing a solo act to try and make the post-credits. But I can't uh, let Travis outdo me with your manipulation of the editing trick that you did with the this is the Russell special thing. That was too good. I'm really upset about it. So why don't you try doing something new like this is Radiolab or something? I don't know. Or um, 
you know, Capes on the Couch podcast presents or something. I don't know. I'm running out of things to say. And I hope that you stopped listening a long time ago because this is really cheesy and stupid. And I hope that, um, yeah, that you don't use this because now I'm embarrassed if this is the the last post credits of, of season two.